Good morning. For those of you who don't know, I'm Mikey, Pastor DeWayne's oldest son. I look like him, just halfway there. Ha not, you know what I mean. We all know what you mean. We've been going through a sermon series about the Beatitudes. I always thought Beatitudes was a funny word in uh, college because one of my professors had a funny accent, and he would call them the Beatitudes. He sounded Amish when he said it. He's like, let's read about the Beatitudes. It, was, it always makes me laugh. And so if I say that wrong, it's not because I have a stutter. It's because I'm flashing back to college days. We're going to go ahead and focus today on uh, verse 8 of the Beatitudes. Uh, but we're going to go ahead and read the whole thing. Starting in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, When he saw the crowd, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That's our verse today. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you falsely and say every evil thing against you. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how you persecuted, or for how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So often, I think when we hear sermons focusing on blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God, we kind of lump this into if you have a pure heart, you get to go to heaven and see God that way. Uh, but that's a very broad statement inside of a, a lot of very specific statements. Uh, Jesus is speaking here. He's being very specific, talking about specific groups of people and giving specific results and outcomes for those groups of people. And for him to suddenly in the middle just lump everybody into one is not really characteristic of how he would have spoken. Um, it's like if he was giving you a, a, a cake recipe and it's like one cup of sugar, two cups of flour, gasoline is extremely flammable one cup of milk like it's it doesn't fit there it's true where we can say that if you have a pure heart you will see god in heaven that's true it doesn't fit in the context of this situation uh in the beginning in, in uh, excuse me in verse one it says when he saw the crowd he went up on the mountain and if you just read that statement i can really relate to jesus because like it's like i see a large crowd of people i'll climb a mountain before i'll deal with a large crowd of people um he sat down, the disciples came to him, and they began to teach them, saying, how many disciples would have been with him right here? Somebody give me a number. He said 12. That's wrong. <laughs> We're in chapter 5, and if you read just, just before in chapter 4, it, it starts to kind of list some of the disciples that would have been with Jesus. But later on, we don't get to like chapter 9 when Matthew, whose book we are reading, even comes into a picture with Jesus. So all the disciples are not even with Jesus at this point when he's preaching this sermon. In, in verse 18 of chapter 4, it talks about Jesus walking, and he calls Simon and Andrew, and then he goes further and calls James and John. And immediately following that, he's like, let's go to the mountain and preach. And, and the Sermon on the Mount is much more than just the Beatitudes. It, it's chapters long. And... This is perhaps the most famous sermon ever preached. 
one, because of who preached it. But two, because it's like, what are some big things Jesus did? People are going to be like, oh, he fed the 5,000, the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's just something we're all taught in Sunday school. But why would such a, you know, if he's going to talk about your salvation in heaven, which keep in mind he hasn't gone to the cross yet, but he, he brings some of this up. But why would he be like, if you're pure in heart, you will get to see God. Like that was such a quick, fast thing for Jesus to say that can mean so much. And for context, if we're reading the other Beatitudes, which we've been going through, and if you missed out on that, you know, go back and watch some of these. It talks about being pure in heart. It talks about being hungry and thirsting for righteousness, which are also things that we need to do if we're going to call ourselves saved. You know, being humble. But I think if I was there with Jesus at that time, you know, obviously he's preaching in a crowd, and much like you know, nobody today is really going to interrupt and stop and ask questions in this kind of a context. Like a group discussion, you know, we might stop and be like, I have a question. But like in this context, when someone's preaching, you typically don't raise your hand and ask questions. I mean, you could, you just, you might get some looks or some, some you know, kind of like, that's not this, what this is. That's Wednesday night. But if I was with Jesus and he's, you know, reading these off and, you know, kind of nodding, listening, he's like, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Bless her. I'd have been like, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Let's go back to that. You know, is it, are we going to get to see God like, like our ancestor Moses did? Or is it going to be like a flash of light in front of a burning bush? Are we going to see God like Adam did? Are we going to be able to walk with him? Like, what, what do you, there's so many different, you know, historical references to seeing God. If I'm at this point in my life, like what, what is, what do you mean by this, Jesus? But no one did that. So, we don't get to know what the answer would have been. I think that, first off, to be pure in heart is something that would mean a lot more to these disciples and these people that were listening a little while down the road when we see Jesus ultimately make a sacrifice for all of humanity. So many of these things, I feel like, would have clicked a lot more on the other side of the cross. Charles Spurgeon said, when the heart is washed, the dirt is taken away from the mental eyes. The heart that loves God is connected with an understanding that perceives God. There is no way of seeing God until the heart is renewed by sovereign grace. It is not greatness of intellect, thank the Lord, but purity of affection that enables us to see God. You know, I, I was watching an interview with one of the smartest scientists of our day, and someone asked him, they're like, do you believe in God? And he's like, no, I, I don't see evidence for that. And this is an astrophysicist that can, you know, understands the cosmos of the universe, and he's like, I really don't see evidence of God. And you want to look at him and be like, how? Um, you know, I, I, I went to a, I went to end up, going to a, a Christian college, but I started off, I did my core classes at a secular college. Then I remember I, I was homeschooled, as you could probably tell, for a little bit, and then I went to a private Christian school after that until I graduated. And so I really didn't have the exposure to, like, evolution and other things until I went to college. I'll never forget the panic I had when I was in uh, I was in my freshman year of college, first semester, and I had to take an anthropology class because it counted for one of the sciences, and it was there. 
So I go in the class, and she's like, okay, well, um, you know, we're, we're going to kind of skip the first couple chapters because that's just the basis of evolution, which all y'all should know from high school. And I'm like, no, I don't. No, I don't. She's like, we'll just read and catch up. I'm like, you want me to read and catch up on the entire theory of evolution? But I remember, like, when, when other classes would talk about evolution and other things like that, uh, I had one class that was, the professor was very cool. He was very unbiased. He talked about all different sort of facets of how we came to get here. Um, and I remember he said, every explanation for how we got here is a miracle. And someone's like, well, what about evolution? He's like, still, they, they, they asked for one miracle. Like, give us the Big Bang that it just miraculously, everything just popped into place, and then everything else we can explain with science. But there's no explanation of any way we got here, secular or Christian, that doesn't result in there being one, at least one, miraculous event. And, and to hear... And like we read earlier, it says it's not greatness of intellect. I've never been accused of being great, greatness of intellect. That sentence should be enough as it is. But even me being the not sciencey geared guy, hearing some of these explanations for like how the universe was created, how we all got to be here, is kind of like, wow, I feel like you're making this up as you're going along. It's like, well, how do we get here? Well, everything in the universe was compressed in a ball this big and then exploded, and that kicked everything off. It's like, so it just, it just exploded, just like that. Yep, that's how it happened. But me saying that there's an all-powerful being that spoke everything into existence is somehow l less, you know, scientific than that. Yes. Okay. Um, I think that when we start to read more and more and look for answers away from God, we tend to come up with more questions. You know, I, in that same anthropology class, um, I took a similar class when I was in a Christian college. And it talked about how it was, it was anthropology from the view of, like, missionaries and, like, doing missions. And it was very cool to watch. Um, but I got to hear a lot about how other cultures outside of the scientific community or, like, outside of the developed world viewed creation. And everybody kind of comes up with there was an almighty being that just kind of spoke it into existence. And if people on their own, like who wear like little loincloths and hunt with a spear to this day, still adhere to some almighty being that spoke the world into existence, you know, it's, it's, it's a trend that keeps on trending. And just hang on with me. We're going somewhere with this, I promise. I think that when it comes to being a Christian in the world today, then there's one question that you're going to get asked that is the hardest question to answer, but it doesn't have to be. You know, when people ask you, like, or, why are you a Christian? You know, it's easy to answer that. People ask you, like, well, what church do you go to? What are your church? Well, I can answer that. How do you know that God is real? And that's when you hear the crickets chirp. Because... Not because it's hard to answer how do we know God is real. It's because we suddenly feel 
the impact of like, I now have to convince them that God is real. But that wasn't the question, was it? It's how do you know God is real? You see, I think that when we bear the weight of saying, I have to convince other people with the reality that I've experienced, it, it's not going to work because it's, that's, that's how we know God is real. And how people in this room have come to find God and find who he is to them is so radically different. The evidence that God revealed himself to you and how he's real is very different for everybody. There are people that found God at rock bottom, and some people were introduced to God at a very early age and kind of grew up with him. There are people that found God after, you know, knowing him as a child and then leaving him and coming. Everybody who found God at some point in time came to him different. And so when people ask us this question, how did you find God? We feel like, oh, well, you, let me explain the evidence and try to talk you into being. No, just answer the question. How did you find God? Well, I was lost, and this is how my life was, and then this is how God kind of revealed himself to me. You know, I've told the story before where I was at, my rock bottom is different than a lot of people's rock bottom, and mine was my sophomore slump in college. And anybody who knows me knows that, like, sitting in a classroom was not good for me. I, I was ADD before ADD was, like, popular. And I remember I was sitting at the secular college in my sophomore year, and I'm in, I was in a ge geography or geology class. I don't remember what the class was, should tell you enough. And uh, I'm sitting there, and I'm, the professor was the most boring man on the planet. And he spit eight yards when he talked. So I had to sit at the back anyways because I'm not getting a shower in class. That's just gross. And so I'm sitting there, and he's just mumbling. He's like, that's literally what the man sounded like. Who hired him at this college should be shot in the knee. But besides that, and I remember I was sitting there, and I'm like, Lord, I, and I'm a finance major, and I hate numbers, and I'm, and I'm like, why am I doing this? And so I kind of made, I, I got on my iPad, and I found two things. I found an application for a manual college, and the application for the Navy. <laughs> it's funny, but I filled out, I, I got in touch with the Navy recruiter, and I filled out an application. I said, Lord, I'm not doing this anymore. Either get me into this school, or I'm joining the Navy, and I'm going to be a sailor. And that was, and God was like, let's not make you a sailor. Let's get, and I got into college and it worked out and I was able to grow my relationship with God further than I ever have. But I was very spiritually immature where I was like, God, either you pull me out of this or I'm going to be a sailor. Like that's, this is where I'm at in my life. I don't know what to do. I'm bored. I, I, I hate this school. I know I've already started the student loan thing and I can't work at Chick-fil-A the rest of my life. So I need some help here. And the way God revealed himself to me was being like, kind of helping me along in life when I was too spiritually immature to help myself and pull myself out of where I was. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. You know, if there's one thing I, I learned through that whole process, it's that there's nobody in the room, there's nobody on the planet that has a naturally pure heart. The Bible teaches us that each of us are born into sin. And sometimes that sin that we're born into, we naturally want to have a negative outlook on life. And there's certain things we're always going to be negative about. 
everybody in the room has a pet peeve about something that just drives you nuts and you're going to voice your discomfort with such a thing. And that's okay. But naturally, our inclination is to see the negative in this world today. Turn on the news and find good news. There's not any. I ride with a guy I work with a lot, and he always has it on like WSB Talk Radio, and I want to put my head through the windshield because it's always about somebody got shot, somebody's doing something bad. It's never like, hey, today, you know, puppies are now happier than ever in the United States of America. It's never good news. As a society and as a group of people, we naturally err towards the negative. You know, we always want to find what's wrong with a situation because naturally, when we're born, our hearts are not pure. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And what Spurgeon said, he said, the heart that loves God is connected with an understanding that perceives God. And so when we've accepted Christ into our life and we're striving to be more like him, when we're striving to have a heart that's pure, when we're striving to learn more about him and focus on him, it's like God begins to open our eyes to see more and more evidence of him throughout the world. It's not intellect because you can be a genius and still not see God. But purity of affection when you fall in love with Jesus, you start to see more of him around the world. You know, there's, there's a song that comes on the radio a lot. Um, not that this is a deeply theological, but it's called, the song is called Where I Find God. It comes on the radio a lot. It's by Larry Fleet. Uh, I'm going to read some of it and see if this strikes anybody. It says, uh, the night I hit rock bottom, sitting on an old bar stool, he paid my tab, put me in a cab, but he didn't have to. He could see I was hurting and wish I'd got his name because I didn't feel worth saving, but he saved me just the same. That day on the water when the fish wouldn't bite, I put my pole down, floated around. It was just so quiet, and I could hear my old man saying, Son, just be still because you can't find peace like this in a bottle or a pill. And the course is from a bar stool to an Evinrude, Sunday morning in a church pew in a deer stand or a hayfield, or on an interstate back to Nashville in a Chevrolet with the windows down, me and him riding around, sometimes whether I'm looking for him or not, that's where I find God. He said, another verse said, Sometimes late at night I lie there and listen to the sound of her heart beating and the song the crickets are singing. I don't know what they're saying, but it sounds like a hymn to me. I ain't good that, no, I ain't that good at praying. But Lord, thanks for everything. You know, there's times when, you know, you, you might be quietly in your car or just at peace alone by yourself sitting on a lake or staring at a tree in the woods hoping a giant deer walks by to shoot him in the face. That was harsh, I know. But some of y'all felt me on that one. I didn't get an amen from Trina. I was kind of banking on that. But sometimes we're just chilling out and God kind of reveals himself or talks to us and we kind of have a moment alone with God. Not because we're sitting in church and listening to a sermon or we're, we're doing something exceptionally spiritual at that point in time, but because we've devoted our lives to having a pure heart and striving after God. 
We've, we've devoted ourselves to the best of our ability to seeking out who God is. There's moments when we're maybe far away from a church view, but God's going to reveal himself to us in our situation right then. You know, I don't recommend, you know, trying to find God sitting on a bar stool in a bar. You know, that's not a ministry we have here at LifePoint. You know, but there's times when, you know, sometimes it's hanging out with your buddies on Wednesday at the Chinese buffet with the men at church. Sometimes it's finding quiet. Sometimes it's sitting outside. Sometimes it's just drinking a cup of coffee, enjoying a morning. And God just kind of reveals himself. And you look out in to out, you know, out a window or wherever, and you just go, how can you not believe? And it's not because we're so smart and we can prove through our great scientific intellect on paper that God is real, but because in our hearts we've strived to have a pure heart and strive to learn the ways of God, and he has revealed himself to us, and we can see who God is. It said, purity of affection. You know, I think that's one that we overlook a lot. It's we, we see people that are so smart worshiping God, that have the right words to say, that have the right understanding of the Bible, that have the right concept of theology. And it's like, I don't have as good of a relationship as they do. But because they have the right words to say. But can I tell you something? Purity of affection towards God, being able to look and say, I love you, has nothing to do with the way you can communicate in intellect. You know, my four-year-old sometimes communicates with me by just diving off a couch and kicking me in the forehead. <laughs> Those have have little kids, you're like, yeah, that's, that's how they say I love you. And that means more to me than any conversation I could have with anybody in this room. Is it because she had the right words to say and she can sit down with me and be like, Dad, I'd like to speak with you about our relationship and how this house is run and I just really appreciate you providing everything. My daughter came up to me the other day and goes, Dad, can you buy me some money? I was like, wish I could, dear. But it's moments like that that stick out, and I, I love my child for the goofiness she is, not because of the great conversations we can have back and forth. You know, it's, and what's funny, she started to repeat what I say, which I have to be very careful with now. But I mean, we, we were sitting down, and, and, and usually when I get home from school, like I'll ask her what she learned at school that day, and if she can tell me what she learned at school, she'll get a treat that weekend, which usually involves tacos and ice cream, which is ironically the same treat her mom gets when she wants something. And so now my, my daughter, will she'll come in and sit down and do the best serious face she can. She goes, so what did you learn today? I will buy you a treat if you can tell me. And those moments between a father and a daughter are fantastic. I love her to death. And, and seeing the, the purity and innocence of, like, she loves me and she wants to have a conversation with me. And even though, like, she can't buy me a treat, she doesn't have any money. In fact, she has the opposite of money. She costs me a lot of money. <laughs> it has nothing to do with the way I look at her. But you know what? She started to see things through my eyes and hear the things that I say and start to repeat it back. And that's growing our relationship. 
You know, I'm starting to notice my daughter have a love for the outdoors and like no fear in there. The other day we were in the woods at night because she wanted to, because why not? And we heard some rustling in a bush and I clicked my flashlight on and saw a possum. And we're in, we're not like just by injury, we're in the woods, okay? And my daughter just screams and is like, let's get it. (laughs) And so me and my daughter ran through the woods chasing a possum. And she was screaming, "Ah!" like a wild Viking baby the whole time. And it's in moments like that, I'm like, yeah, definitely my kid. It's because she started to do things that I did. She started to act like me. She started to behave like me. Is she contributing to society in the same way that I am? No, but she started, there's no doubt in my mind who she is. Because she's starting to see things through my eyes. She's starting to act the way I act. She's starting to see how I do things and try to do things in the same way. You know, and it has nothing to do with her level of intellect. And I think she's a smart kid, but she's still four. How much more than does God look at us? When we try to start seeing things through his eyes, when we start trying to imitate the way his son was, when we start trying to act on the words of his son, when we start trying to be more like him, he doesn't care how smart we are. He doesn't care how much we're putting into the relationship. He just cares that we're trying to be like him. And the love in our eyes when we look up to him, like the love in my daughter when she looks up to me, and we might ask God for things that seem silly to him. We might be like, God, can you buy me some money? I prayed that prayer. I'm not like, Lord, if you could just send the check. We might ask God for silly things, but we, he doesn't judge us. Like, why would you ask for something goofy like that? It's just, you're like, oh, that's, that's not how this works. But you're going to learn. When we get to see God and we start to strive for a pure heart, it has nothing to do with the fact that we're growing spiritually and we're growing spiritually in a way that makes us smarter. Growing spiritually in a way that makes us more dependent. You know, I feel like when Jesus is preaching this message and he's like, blessed are the poor in spirit, there are people that were kind of picked up like, yeah, I feel, I feel pretty poor in spirit. And he's blessed are those who mourn. And there's people like, yeah, I've, I've definitely mourned. Blessed are the humble. And like, I'm humble. You can ask me about it. And <clears throat> blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we start to take on a little bit different level there where it's like, I want to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And, and you know, blessed are the merciful. And it's like, yeah, I should probably be more merciful. And then it's pure in heart. It's like he's ramping it up as he starts. It's like, you know, first of all, there's people that are poor in spirit. There's people that are mourning. And then it's like, let's start with trying to be humble and admit that we don't have it all together and then start to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Start to show mercy and love, the same mercy and love that Christ showed to us. And then we strive for pure heart and then the rest are going to have to come back with in the next couple of weeks. But God in his infinite wisdom and infinite understanding who wrote a plan for our life, who had a purpose and a reason why we're on the planet, gave us evidence all around to his existence. And it's not hard to see, but sometimes you got to pray and try to see it. Anybody who 
there, there's been times when I believe that we've seen evidence of an amazing, miraculous event. When God is the only explanation for that. There's people in your life that may have found God that you're like, God had to be involved with that one. Because there's no way they should have found, like, they, their whole life lived in absolute resistance to God. And then suddenly they found him and then died shortly after. It's like, God, God, that's a miracle. Or there might have been a miraculous healing or something that happened where you're like, God got involved. But then sometimes through our spiritual eyes, we're sitting there and we start to see the things God would see where he'd say, listen, maybe buy the person's food in line behind you in the drive-thru. And you normally don't do this, just like that little, like, I could see God doing that. Or we don't see people with an eye of judgment, but with an eye of compassion. You know, when we see screaming children in a restaurant, we don't look at them like they should really get their kids to, you know, to behave together. You, you, you focus on, you know, maybe it's a wonderful thing that a family is actually sitting at a table together with no screens. We start to look at things through a more positive light in our life. Because I'll be honest, like working in retail for so long made me look at the world very negatively. My faith in the human race went down so much after six years in fast food service. And I worked for Chick-fil-A, and that's like the better of the fast food service. But like, man, I'm going to be honest. Like I, I just, every day I would say, man, people are so stupid, like all the time. And that's not a heart of compassion as Christ would. You think, I mean, I'm sure Christ probably thought like, man, y'all are kind of stupid, but he, he wouldn't say that to their face. He'd probably like, y'all are stupid. I'm still going to die for you and love you and coach you through it, though. But we stop it at the man, people are stupid. We usually say, man, people are stupid. There's no hope for that one. You know, man, people are stupid. You're the reason there's a warning on a garbage bag. Like, just stuff where we're hurtful and mean and and it's easy to do that it comes so naturally for us to err on the side of judgment and anger it's human nature i've ridden with a lot of y'all in a car and compassion and kindness is not the first thing that comes to a lot of our minds my mom's word when she's driving is momo she'd be like just cut in front of me momo Short for moron, yes. But when we get, but I think it's because when we're driving, it's we don't we don't see other people, we see other cars. And let me just ask you this: if someone someone cuts off in front of you and you see a dent in their car, and you're like, "That's where your car's wrecked." We're not we're not looking at the person driving. We're just we treat people. We've removed a level of humanity from people. And we start to not see people in the world around us. We just kind of see a crowd. We don't see individuals. We just see cars on the highway. We don't see people in line at the drive-thru. We just see people in our way to get our breakfast. We don't see the world that Christ died for. We just see people are stupid. You know, and it said a large crowd. It said when, when he saw the crowd, he went up on the mountain. If I went up on the mountain, I'd have kept going up the mountain until people stopped following me. That's where I I had a cliff bar and a Nalgene, gone to the mountain and been like, I'm sick of this crowd. But Jesus gets up on the mountain and starts to preach the greatest sermon that's ever been written. Through the eyes of Jesus and through the, the eyes of our heart that's seeking Jesus, 
We don't see a crowd of people and anxiety and anger and frustration with people. We see a world that needs to be saved. When we start to see God with a pure heart, we start to see the people who Christ died for, not just blank faces in a crowd. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. It's not just they will see God, it's that they will see what God sees. You know, I'll never forget, I had uh, one of the men I looked up to spiritually more than anybody. He's the guy that did my wedding, and he was working at Chick-fil-A with me for a while, and one of his pastor friends came through the drive-thru and got his order wrong, which, yes, oh, yes, at Chick-fil-A, sometimes they get the order wrong. And this dude was a fellow pastor and didn't recognize him because it had been a while since they seen each other. And this dude just started freaking out and like, what do you mean? How hard is it going to be? And, he, and if I can remember, he said something like, dude, what are you doing, man? Like, what if somebody that went to your church was here? And then the eyes opened like, oh, no, this guy knows me. Has anybody ever been really rude and then, like, all of a sudden a mutual friend walks up and you realize that, like, they're not that far removed from your circle and you're like, uh-oh, I was not nice to them. Or you sit, find them on Facebook and you have, like, 100 mutual friends and you're like, man, they've probably met me before and I'm acting like a moron. See, if we try to look at the world through the way Christ saw the world. We don't have to worry about stuff like that. Our witness to the world to show them who Christ is is far more important than teaching the random guy in the drive through line a lesson because his horn honked at you on accident or whatever reason it might be. You know, I, I never worked as wait staff, but I had enough friends that were that talked about how ugly people could be to wait staff. Yelling at wait staff because the food wasn't cooked right. Like they're the ones that cooked it. And I, I don't understand, especially since like the whole the pandemic thing happened. Like people, we've distanced ourselves from the humanity where we start just to be mean to each other. And don't get me wrong, if you're one of my close friends, I'm going to roast you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say some awful things and pick on you, but I love you more than anything. And you're going to return the favor. That's how it works. We pick on each other out of love. But, but when we're just facelessly being mean to somebody to try to ruin their day because they minorly inconvenienced us, that doesn't come from a pure heart or from somebody who's seeing through God. So if that's how we're acting, we need to completely revamp our entire existence on what we think a Christian is. If we're truly saying that we're a Christian and our heart has been purified from God and we don't see people as creation and see people as people who Christ died for, we see them as just someone in our way and inconveniencing us and somebody that we want to ruin their day because something bad happened to us, we need to really rethink what we identify ourselves as. You know, I've seen too many people in this world show anger in times when anger was not necessary. And I get it. We, we, we get frustrated at times. I get frustrated at times. I've, I snap sometimes. But the difference is, is, that, is that 
the norm for us? Do we default to anger? And do we realize that, are we proud of anger? You know, I, I think that through the eyes of God, we don't default to hatred and default to anger. We default to love and peace and mercy. And that's not saying that we don't slip up, but I think how we default to in our life is how is what like these bracelets that Jordan handed out, which I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of. It's how what would Jesus do? How would Jesus react in this situation? You know, if if we're in the worst place on the planet, which is to me, Walmart. And and there's people and I, I'll never forget. I was at Walmart and undisclosed city close by. And I remember this, there's these two parents that were not reacting well to how Walmart was treating them that day. And they took their eyes off of their toddler child and toddler walks around the corner. And while they were busy yelling at each other, toddler disappeared for a second. Well, I can see toddler and see them. And part of me was like, I just need to walk away and let this thing unfold. And then as they look around, they're like, where'd he go? And I just kind of went. And they're like, thank you. I'm like, Part of me wanted to just be like, well, maybe DFACs will treat the kid better than y'all do. But part of me also knows the feeling of when you lose your kid for a split second, take your eyes off them. How do we default? Do we default to anger? Do we default to not my job? Do we default to none of my business? Or can we show a tiny bit of love in a situation that might be simple, but could really make someone's entire world different. You know, just like earlier when I asked the question, how many disciples were here when Jesus was preaching? It's, we, we all kind of default to say like 12, because that's just kind of what we assume. And it's not a bad thing to assume, but if you start to read around and you start to see that like just before this, when Jesus was called in and Jesus was tempted and then he called the disciples, if you start to get the bigger picture around the Sermon on the Mount, you start to have a better context of what's going on. And unfortunately, in our life, we default to just seeing what we need to through a small circle, not everything that's going on. And we judge a situation based on just a little bit of information. And I don't think that's how Christ would have reacted. I think that if we truly want to have a pure heart and strive to be more like Christ, we need to try to see things how God saw them. We need to try to look at people the way Christ looked at them. And we need to act like Christ would have acted towards them. And I think when we do that, we will start seeing God more and more each and every day in each of our lives. Will you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your many blessings. We thank you that we can come before you and worship you and talk about you. We can see you above all else because you sent your son. Bless us to keep us going forward and help us to always remember why we do what we do. In your son's name, amen.